Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's it. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Who here has ever given something to someone? Maybe a child, maybe a friend, and immediately regretted this decision. <laughs> a lot of sheepish hands here. I'm assuming there will be you know, more hands are up in their heads. That's all right. Um, that's good. This verse is for you. Um, Jesus has kind of unkind words for such people that cause such regrets. And his words actually reminded me of a story from my youth. How many of you started school this week? Yeah, yeah. It's sad, isn't it? I've never liked school, except for Sunday school. Sunday school's awesome, and you should all be here at 945 next week. Um, but I will say that one of the best parts of being an adult was leaving school behind. Um, it's like a three-way tie between marriage, parenthood, and leaving school, right? <laughs> Growing up is totally worth it, guys. I spent the early years of my life in public school in Philadelphia, which didn't help my perspective, I guess. I went to Lowell Elementary. Uh, I don't have a lot of great memories from my time there, but I, I did used to enjoy eating lunch with my cousin Joe, who was a fellow, fellow student, lived in the neighborhood. And our moms always packed our lunch, which was good because the food there wasn't very good. And um, Joe and I am... One of his friends, we used to make a habit of avoiding the hot, sweaty cafeteria, which also doubled as our school gym. And we would just go right outside and eat outside. Um, and there was no grass in the schoolyard, because this is Philadelphia, and we don't have nice things. And there were no benches to sit on, because again, this is Philadelphia, and you don't have nice things. So we ate at the corner, the far corner, by the fence, on the ground, and we made small talk with the crossing guard, whose name was Etta, and we had gotten to be friendly with her. But I'll never forget one day, Etta was off duty, I think, and, and some teachers walked by us on their way to get lunch on 5th Street, and they, one of them stopped to ask why we were eating out here. Uh, except she didn't exactly ask. She just sort of stopped, stared at us, and said, You pigs, she said to us as students. I was in third grade. She went on to berate us for eating on the playground like uncivilized people and not sitting in the, un, uh, you know, the approved seating area that they had designated with all the other kids. Philly public schools are so charming. Um, that might be the only time I've ever been called a pig to my face, and it's still, I'm still flabbergasted. I can't believe this, you know. It was not the most pleasant experience. I felt a little bit like I was being judged or something, you know, maybe. And, and as an adult, I would have had choice words for this lady. Um, but we all know that being called a pig is not typically a compliment, is it? Uh, even those of us who like pigs know this. Uh, they can be kind of cute from a distance, but they're not very sanitary animals, are they? Uh, Babe is one of my favorite movies, but pet pigs are honestly a weird idea. I don't know why you would keep such a thing in the house. They, they stink. They, they make weird noises, right? Uh, treating them like house pets only works in Hollywood. 
And they can be pretty aggressive animals, too. I've mentioned it before, but you know, Alyssa did 4-H and, and dealt with pigs, and by the end of a few weeks, she was happy to see her assigned pig, Pansy, sent off to the slaughterhouse. No tears were shed for Pansy. We celebrated by going out for barbecue. And we knew this was coming. She had named her Pansy, which Pansy was short for pancetta, so we all knew what was coming. But... Calling someone a pig is understood by everyone to be an insult. This is not limited to our time. It was certainly an insult among Jews 2,000 years ago. I may not love pigs as pets, but I do love me some pork. So I respect pigs, even if I don't want to live with them, right? Uh, But if you're an observant Jew in this time, right, and even today, not even the promise of bacon redeems the pigs, right? Right? you're not allowed. If you're an observant Jew, you're kind of just, you're, you're, you're out of luck. Pigs don't represent delicious breakfast. They are just a dirty, unclean, aggressive animal that you are forbidden to eat. So calling someone a pig in first century Judea was not really a kindness. In fact, it's kind of rude. So I ask myself the obvious question, why does Jesus use such rude language in this verse? Especially last week, we spent the entire sermon talking about being judgmental. And here, right after that passage, Jesus throws this pig comment out there like, you know, okay. It seems like it kind of clashes with the tone of his previous verses there. I mean, and it's become such a cliche, right? Pearls before swine. That's the name of my, one of my favorite comics, right? You know, like everybody knows what it means, but it, it would have sounded kind of coarse to Jesus' listeners. And let's be honest, the dog comment doesn't really help things, does it? We live in a culture that is weirdly obsessive about our canine companions, aren't we? I like dogs, but let's face it, dogs are also disgusting, and it's still not a compliment to be called a dog. Like, I, look, I ha- we have two mutts at home. I have seen what they lick, okay? It's, it's gross. They're not pigs, but they are not sanitary. You'll meet people who try to claim dogs' mouths have less bacteria, technically, than human mouths, and it's like, I can't respond to that scientifically, but I think that's more of a knock on humans than a vindication of dogs, if you know what I mean. (laughs) My one dog likes to lick the inside of the other one's ears because they smell bad. It's like, it's so weird. It's so gross. And dogs have always done these kinds of things. And dogs were not primarily a domesticated animal in Jesus' day. Maybe wealthy Romans could afford to keep dogs, and the Egyptians valued dogs as a domesticated breed. But for most of Jesus' audience, living in, in, in Judea, these are just street animals. And that's how Scripture tends to talk about them. It's an amazing thing. For all the miracles that happen in Scripture, nowhere do we have, like, talking dogs that save the day. There's no lassie character in Scripture. You know what I mean? They're just pests that roam the streets, scavengers looking for a handout. In other words, the idea of being a dog mom was not a thing in Jesus' day. The main thing these two animals have in common is that they will eat anything. It is disturbing what pigs and dogs will eat. Dogs will eat trash, they'll eat cat poop, and untold other disgusting things. Pigs will literally eat garbage. My kids have no memory of this, but when I was growing up in Philadelphia, we actually had a separate garbage collection that got sent to, the, to, the, to feed the hogs in New Jersey. We had to keep everything in separate bags. A more disgusting fact is that pigs will eat human flesh if offered. George and I watched the show Deadwood, and that was like the running 
gag, the theme that the local crime bosses got rid of their murder victims that way. You'll still occasionally see this in news stories, how people will get attacked because they somehow fell in the hog pen. Pigs are nasty, nasty animals. So again, why does Jesus use these very unsavory analogies? Well, he obviously wants to get our attention somehow. He obviously isn't talking about literal dogs and pigs and pearls, right? Uh, So when you read this verse, several questions need to be answered. First off, we need to know what he means by pearls and holy things, right? Uh, And second, we need to figure out what he means by pigs and dogs and who they are and who we should be avoiding. Now, obviously, all of those questions, figuring out who the dogs and the pigs and the pearls are, this requires making judgments, Even understanding what a pearl is requires discernment. This passage requires and calls for good judgment. I was talking to Pastor Green last week about this, and he observed that much of this chapter is actually Jesus giving lessons in how to exercise good, sound judgment. He started by warning us about judging cavalierly, right? But he proceeds to urge his disciples to judge wisely then. And last week we saw that he also wants us to judge compassionately and to use our discernment to help our brothers who are struggling with sin, and some people need that. But here, Jesus says that some other people should simply be left alone and set to drift. In fact, he seems to be telling us that in some cases exercising good judgment looks like writing some people off almost as if they were wild animals. He's basically saying it's pointless to talk to certain types of people. In fact, it can actually be dangerous. The the word attack that's used here, it's actually more accurately translated as being torn to pieces. It's, It's actually graphic. In other words, making this mistake could be deadly. So it sounds like this command is worth figuring out. It could save us a lot of pain and heartache. Well, what is this pearl Jesus speaks of? It's something holy, obviously. The statements kind of go together, right? And it's also something valuable. That's what pearls are. Pearls are beautiful and rare and hard to get, and they're a sign of wealth. And that was especially true back then. Uh, nowadays, pearls can be farmed, but that didn't start till the 50s, actually. So back in Jesus' day, these, they still had to get them the old-fashioned way. Uh, pearls get mentioned here and there in Scripture. Often it refers to just women's jewelry in in general, but if we cheat and read ahead a few chapters, and we're allowed to do that, we can do that, Uh, in chapter 13, we, we get another famous pearl analogy from Jesus. He says in that chapter that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Jesus uses a pearl as an illustration, as a picture of the kingdom. And that image shows up again in Revelation, actually. Uh, John records in his vision in, in Revelation 21 that the New Jerusalem, which is you know, the heavenly city descending to earth, has 12 gates in it, and each one is made of a single pearl, which sounds beautiful, if not very secure or practical. And the point is, even if this saying was confusing to Jesus' original audience, we have some context to work with. Pearls are a picture of the coming kingdom. And like pearls, the kingdom is beautiful, and it is valuable, and it is worth selling everything you have to get your hands on it. And I think that he is using the imagery in a similar way, but not identical. Because pearls are also fragile gems. Uh, of any precious stone out there, a pearl is among the easiest thing to scratch or scuff, which is why they make better necklaces than rings, in other words. Now, 
I don't tend to think of the kingdom as being fragile because it's not. But it's interesting that Jesus uses this imagery here because it's clear that in this case, these pearls he's talking about are easily damaged. And that's why he warns us not to toss them about too freely. The pearls he's talking about are not indestructible. Well, it seems obvious that the pearls here represent the gospel, specifically as we present it. It's not the kingdom itself. That is indestructible. They're not the gospel itself. The gospel is always true regardless, right? But it seems to me that the pearls Jesus is referring to are related but distinct. He calls them our pearls, meaning something that we have ownership of. And it's also stated in the plural, so it's the singular uh, uh, version, uh, not, not the singular version of the pearl of great price. It's something smaller, a reflection of it. And that's the usual interpretation, is that Jesus is talking about our presentations of the gospel and holy truth that we share with people. Our pearls these are these small-scale reflections of the greater pearl. So he's talking about evangelism and apologetics, in other words. Closely related fields, of course, but I think we can make a distinction even between pearls, which corresponds well with presenting the gospel and evangelism, and things that are just generally holy, which could include broader biblical truths and teachings. Uh, Jesus says it's dangerous to share the gospel or broader biblical truth with pigs and dogs, because not only will they not receive it, they will trample it and turn to attack you. Which begins to answer the other question we asked, who are the pigs and dogs? And the basic answer is people who act like pigs and dogs. Who trample the things of God into the mud and turn to attack the one who offered it. If we take this at face value, Jesus seems to be saying that we are under no obligation to evangelize, or at least to continue evangelizing, these types of people. Now that's kind of a strange lesson. And it's a weird lesson for me to have to preach. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be teaching a, a course in apologetics at Excelsior at the co-op this year. And more importantly, as your pastor, uh, I have been pounding away at the theme of evangelism for the better part of my tenure here. That's why we did the Book of Acts. That's basically why we're doing the Sermon on the Mount. And it's going to be a central focus of the next couple series we're doing as well. We're going to be looking at the Great Commission for a little bit. We're going to be doing the book of Jonah. So I've always been under this impression that evangelism is always a good thing. And I don't think I'm wrong in assuming that over-evangelism is probably not our biggest weakness. We're not over-sharers of our faith here. We tend to undershare, if anything. We're typically pretty timid about our faith. And I've been pushing us to have a kingdom mindset that is eager to evangelize and ultimately to disciple new Christians. I would love to have the problem of you all being just a little too zealous and too out there, you know. I'd love for me to have that problem. And we need to be doing evangelism. That's what Christians are called to do. But Jesus, in just this verse, seems to sort of slap a caution label on the whole project. He doesn't say stop evangelizing, but he does say be careful. And he warns us in no uncertain terms that not everyone will receive the gospel. Not everyone's ready for it. We know that's true, but I don't know how, I don't know that we appreciate how harmful it can be to focus and pour our energies into evangelizing people who are God's sworn enemies. 
not every situation even calls for persistence. Sometimes we have to just walk away. One of my favorite passages in Proverbs, it's a pair of verses back to back. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him himself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? How should I answer a fool? If I get on his level, I'll be a fool too. If I don't, he'll think he outsmarted me. And I once had someone tell me that this passage was a great example of Scripture contradicting itself, God contradicting himself. But I strongly disagree because actually both statements are true. These Proverbs are not instructions on how to interact with fools. They're a demonstration of why you will never win an argument with one. You can't fix stupid. If someone is set in their foolishness, they cannot be reasoned with. The solution is not to answer him at all. And the point is connected, because if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it follows that the lack of said fear is the epitome of foolishness. Or, as the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If people reject the pearl of the gospel... It is not because the news isn't good enough. It is not because the evidence is insufficient. It's not because you haven't explained thoroughly enough. Some people reject the gospel for the simple reason that they hate Christ and his gospel. And they want nothing to do with him. And you will know who these people are by how they react to the gospel. If they mock the gospel and start attacking you, then they might just be who Jesus means. You will know them by how they act. It's not wrong to share the gospel with everybody once, but if they are only interested in mocking the things of God, Jesus says you can stop. Not only could their hostility damage your faith, they are actually increasing their own condemnation because the more you keep talking to them, the more they're just blaspheming and their guilt is accumulating. People like that are not worth arguing with. And if you keep giving them precious gospel truth, they will only blaspheme more, and you could end up being very discouraged. Now, that may sound harsh and almost unchristlike, but it's consistent with the entire New Testament. Jesus, when he sent out his disciples after this sermon, if you were to go ahead to Matthew 10, he tells them if. Anyone will not receive you or listen to your words. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And in Luke chapter 10, he sends out 72 disciples with exactly the same instructions. And he follows this advice himself. When he's on trial before Pilate, and Pilate is trying to understand what the charges, what, what do they want, what do they have against you, Jesus answers his questions and tries to kind of lead him along a little bit. But when he's before Herod, and Herod is just a mocker and wants to see you, hey, do a magic trick, Jesus. What does Jesus do? He's completely silent. I'm not even going to dignify it. And how many times did we read that Paul walked out of a synagogue or out of a city because they were hostile and unwilling to listen to the gospel? It's not that he ignored them, but he didn't waste any more time on them. So it's a broad New Testament concept that you are not obligated to keep hammering the same person with the gospel again and again and again. It's not fruitful and it may do more harm than good. It's the same reason you wouldn't lend a diamond necklace to a five-year-old. No good can come of that decision. 
Georgia once sewed a gift for somebody and later saw them using it as a dust rag. It's like that kind of feeling. Like, what was the point of this? Kids know what this is like. How many times have kids built and, and made something or painted something only for your parents to end up throwing it out because they thought it was junk and it was just laying around, you know? It's very disheartening. Kids know how that is. So Jesus doesn't want us to give what is precious, precious to us and to him, to people who don't care. And it's worth observing that he's not worried about his feelings. Jesus can handle the mockery on his end, and he knows that he'll have the last laugh, but he is worried about you. He doesn't want you to be discouraged. The focus of this verse, it's not primarily about the pigs and the dogs. It's a command for you and for your own good. It's because he cares about you that he gives this command. Now, it might sound like it clashes with what I said last week because I said that being a disciple of Jesus is by definition not safe. Our gospel reading earlier seemed to follow that same theme, right? And I stand by that. Discipleship is not a safety first proposition. That's not what this is about. But there's a difference between risking your life or your career or your reputation. These are things that we are supposed to hold lightly. Even our families, we're supposed to hold that lightly. But there's a difference between endangering those things and endangering your faith. This verse is about spiritual warfare. He is worried about your spiritual health more than your physical health. Jesus would rather you lose everything as long as you're still clinging to him. But mockers and scoffers will not only mock what you believe, but the fact that you believe it, and they will make it their purpose to crush your faith. That's what God's enemies do. And there's a reason Jesus has such unpleasant names for them. I assume this is true of all of us, but how many of you have had the experience of arguing with a loved one about the gospel? Maybe you've spent years trying to convince them of the truth of the gospel, and maybe they have only returned the favor by laughing at you and mocking you. So what did you do? What did that do to you? Did it build you up in your faith? Did their attacks make you stronger? If we're to believe what Jesus says, maybe not we need to exercise discernment in who we talk to and how. Maybe you've had this experience, but if evangelism is leaving you feeling depressed, you're probably doing it wrong. It is good news, if you'll recall. If it turns into a prolonged debate that ends in personal attacks, this verse is for you. And there's another practical element to the advice because every minute you waste talking to a hostile, mocking person is a minute you could spend in talking to somebody who's actually interested. The Spirit has been prepping some people for the gospel in ways you can't possibly see or know, and it would be better to invest in them than waste your time on a dead end. A friend of mine used to do street evangelism, and he said this was actually standard practice, and I had never even thought about it. He said, but, you know, you can talk to all kinds of people. We stand on a corner near, near the train station, uh, and we see hundreds and thousands of people, but we never waste time in getting into arguments, he told me. Because if you spend half the time arguing, you lose opportunities with people who are actually ready and want to talk. We tend to do this, I think, 
because we either think that winning an argument will bring honor to Christ somehow, or because we really think we can win this person over if we just have the right words and if we just have enough time. And sometimes it's because we tend to focus all our energy on one person that we really want to see come to Christ, usually someone we love, and we let the relationship suck us dry and distract us from other kingdom work, and that is not productive, and I don't think it honors Christ. There's a scene near the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It appears in the book most clearly. It shows up in the movie, too. But after the great battle, uh, Lucy comes, and she has that cordial, that, that thing she's got around her neck. It's a magic potion that can heal all wounds, and... She takes some of it to Edmund, her brother, who's been mortally wounded. And Aslan says to her, Lucy, many others need medicine. And she says to Aslan, who's, you know, the Jesus character in the story, says, yeah, I know, hold on a minute, essentially. And Aslan rebukes her and says, must more men die for Edmund? I think some of us have a tendency to make ourselves into martyrs pouring out our lives and our emotions and our money and our tears all to reach someone who has no interest in being reached. We're basically trying to add something to the work of Christ and to the work of the Holy Spirit. So the question I would ask is, are we willing to trust Jesus with our loved ones or not? So much of this confusion is rooted in the question of who really saves people? So we try harder and harder, and we pour ourselves out. And when it doesn't work, we feel crushed. I've had people close to me who I've spent years trying to talk to and win over. And I told myself not to alienate one person in particular because I didn't want to scare them off from Christ, right? And I listened as this person belittled the gospel and came to mock what the Bible was teaching and no amount of patient encouragement and winsome arguments and just being a good friend ever got through to them. And it was a painful process, but I eventually became convinced that I could not be Jesus for this person, and I needed to accept that the Holy Spirit could reach this person, but it was not going to be me. And the Apostle Paul applies this same logic in his ministry, as we saw, right? It's it's interesting because he himself resisted and fought against the gospel for such a long time. But what ultimately changed him was not a patient, loving witness throwing him pearls for year after year after year until suddenly he changed his mind and came to value it. No, he needed Jesus to show up and deck him. Paul needed a miracle. We all do. No one comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit changes them first. The point of this verse is not that pigs and dogs can never change. They can and do. Paul was proof of that. But Jesus is saying that you aren't necessarily the one that's going to do it. And he would rather your faith be intact than see you battling with fools. We need to leave room for the Holy Spirit to do the work. Jesus is calling us to humility in evangelism and to remember who does the work. 
We're called to evangelize anyone who will listen. But when we make the mistake of thinking we're the only possible person who could reach so-and-so, we end up carrying a weight that we're not meant to bear. You can't be Jesus for anyone, and you can't do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. Our job is sharing the good news, not changing people's hearts. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So this command, and it's a command, reminds us that stubbornness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Your best efforts mean nothing without the Holy Spirit. And the way... I think we need to apply this teaching from Jesus is to just remember who is sovereign over salvation. And sometimes that means identifying the pigs and the dogs. And again, how do we know that, you know, who the pigs and dogs are? I think we probably learn this from experience. You know, they say if it looks like a duck, smells like a duck, walks like a duck, it might be a duck, right? Well, if it tramples the gospel and bites the hand that offered it, it might be a pig. You don't have to give mockers a second chance to mock you. They need more prayer, not more pearls from you. It's not giving up on them. You're calling in air support. That's what you're doing. And it also means remembering that the problem is not necessarily your delivery, but the condition of their heart. The message of the gospel is never the problem in evangelism. It is always good news, no matter what. And I think it's also a good reminder not to discuss precious Bible doctrines with outsiders. You are never going to have a useful conversation about exclusive male leadership and eldership in the PCA with an angry, unbelieving feminist. That's probably not the place to start. You're not going to explain the doctrine of the Trinity with your drunk frat brother. Lunch with your unbelieving coworker might not be the time to bring up various millennial views. <laughs> Jesus wants you to know your audience. If you give something precious to people who have no respect, that's like giving a crystal wine glass to a two-year-old. They're not going to appreciate it. They'll probably break it, and they might hurt themselves and others. For the record, this is why Georgia buys cheap imitation Corel from Ikea. Same principle. She doesn't want to throw pearls, i.e. real Corel, to swine, i.e. our kids. But this verse also means freedom when it comes to evangelism and apologetics because we as Christians have the ability and sometimes even the responsibility to walk away. We are told, Peter tells us in his first epistle, that we should be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us, but that does not mean that we are obligated to answer every question, especially when those questions are not being asked in good faith. It is okay to say, I don't know. It is okay to say, I'll ask somebody. Better yet, it's okay to ask these people if they genuinely want an answer or not, because if they're just trying to score points, it might be time to just let the conversation drop. You don't stop praying, you just stop arguing. But above all, this verse is a reminder to us of who saves, and it's not you. Jesus knew what he was talking about here because no one threw a bigger pearl before bigger swine than the father did when he sent his son down here. He sent a perfect messenger with the greatest message of all time, He never misspoke, never made a mistake. 
and the people of God thanked him by having him crucified. It ain't the message that's the problem, folks. So let this verse be a reminder that only God is sovereign in salvation. You are not the Holy Spirit. You are not Jesus. And building the kingdom is not your job. And that is very good news. Who saves? Jesus saves. When it comes to evangelism, the battle belongs to the Lord, and that is good news. So that's all I'm going to say is that go ahead and share the good news of what Jesus has done for you. We all should be doing more sharing. And this is good news that's worth sharing, but you only have so many hours and days in your life, so don't waste it on blasphemers. Keep praying, keep sharing, and trust Jesus with the results. Okay? Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for this warning in this verse. Lord, it's a, it's a strange one to have to wrap our heads around, contrary to how we typically think. And Lord, we want to be bolder for the gospel. Lord, most of us struggle with that. And we're not overly eager to share, Lord, with people who are even just mildly disinterested, let alone hostile. We thank you for the freedom that you give us, Lord, to walk away when people are hostile. Not because we're retreating or we don't care, but because, Lord, you are sovereign over these things. We thank you, ultimately, that you are the one who saves, not us. We're your agents, we're your messengers, but we are not the ones changing hearts. And we're thankful for the reminder that this verse gives us of that. We thank you for what you have done for us, and we pray that you would continue to build your kingdom, Lord, as we serve as your servants in that capacity, Lord. We pray that you would build your kingdom here in Allentown and beyond. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom. Blessings flow.